grace to give us the power, to give us the victory, Lord, over sin, to give us strength in our warfare, and to enable us, Lord, to walk, as Paul says here, Lord, in a way that is pleasing to you in your sight. We pray all these things, Father, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we have arrived at the uh, sort of the midway point of this book in First Thessalonians. That's why you have in this section of Thessalonians the Apostle Paul beginning chapter 4 with the words, finally. It's kind of odd if you're reading through this epistle to find the word finally, and yet there are two chapters left in the book. And so it's kind of like, what gives? Well, finally means that he's done with uh, all of the personal interaction with the church. He just got done talking about all of his sort of coming and going and his desire to be with them, all of his correspondence and all the logistics that were involved in his mission to them. And now he's finishing up, but he's finishing up with words of exhortation. That's really what this is all about. And as a matter of fact, he's going to delve into now three major themes in his closing, argue, in his closing exhortations of the book, dealing, number one, with the sexual purity of the church, number two, dealing with the love and the reputation of the church, and number three, dealing with the eschatology of the church. So quite a few topics here that we're going to be diving into with this letter. And so the overarching uh, purpose of Paul here in chapters five and or chapters four and five is really the church's sanctification. That's sort of the overarching, sort of the, the general uh, uh, theme of this entire closing section of the letter is the sanctification of the church, and it begins with this instruction regarding the pur- the purity. Of the church. I want to look at the concept here of sanctification along three lines. Number one, I want to point you to the command of sanctification. We have to begin there because if you notice here in verses one and two, that's really what he's doing. He's setting forth the authoritative nature of his command regarding sanctification. That's why he says, Brethren, we, ex- we request and exhort in, uh, you in the Lord Jesus. Always be mindful of phrases like that. In the Lord Jesus or in Christ or through Christ or by Christ. All of that is really stressing their authority and their instruction. He says, we request of you, even as you received instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. And then he says, just as you actually do walk that you excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So again, here stressing really the command of this exhortation. You know, the directives here regarding how to walk ultimately have to do with pleasing God. Of course, he's already hinted at this earlier. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, he already told them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He's exhorted them about walking worthy, about receiving the Word of God as the Word of God, about their kindness toward their leaders, uh, also about the increase of their faith toward one another. But here the emphasis is on continual growth. Notice that that's what he says here. He says, you're walking in this way and there's no debate there. But he says, this is the essence of the command, that you excel still more. And so that points us in the direction of the growth of sanctification. That is to say that opposite of apathy, 
opposite of stagnation, opposite of thinking that we have arrived to some status quo in our Christian walk. Actually, Christianity is a lifelong journey of growth. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles just to show you this. In Philippians chapter 3, we get there one of the clearest expressions of this, the desire to pursue growth, to pursue further, greater maturity in our own lives. And look at what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. You know this passage, but I'll read it to you anyway. It says, not that I have already obtained, uh, talking about maturity. He says, not that I've already obtained or have become perfect. He says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, and this is the one thing of Christian maturity, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, this, therefore, as many as are perfect... Now, that I think is an unfortunate translation by the NASB. It should be as many of those of us who are mature... Uh, That's really a better word for the term perfect here. He says, have this attitude or literally this mind. And if in anything you have a different attitude, this is interesting, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, Paul was confident that if you listen to his counsel, if you were in fact in error, God would actually correct your erroneous thinking and you would come into conformity with what Paul is prescribing here. This was the commandments that Paul was given to the church, that they would grow and they would excel on the basis of Jesus' own authority towards greater maturity. That's the whole purpose of this. The implication, however, is that Paul, in giving this basis for the believer, he's giving them a commandment that's not rooted in his opinion, not rooted in his own counsel. This was the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. What it reminds us of, brothers and sisters, is that the business of the church, above everything else, is sanctification. Think about that. That in everything in the church, our top priority is holiness. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, if you look just back in the, uh, the exposition of this letter earlier, I mean, he just got done touching on this very thing, requesting of God to do this in the lives and hearts of the believers. He says, so we, he, he, his prayer in verse 13 of the, uh, chapter 3, he says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so the logic of holiness here, that's what this is all about. And everything Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he says he, he is in labor until Christ is formed in the church. That was his overall burden isn't it amazing? Paul was not distracted with lesser things in the church. He didn't care to have a trendy church. He didn't, ha- he didn't care to have a popular church. He didn't care to have a hip, cool church with all the bells and whistles. He, honestly, he could care less about that. He doesn't care to have a big church. He cares to have a holy church. That's what his concern is all about. And in this, he follows Jesus' own desire. Jesus is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. That's the whole purpose that church exists. And this um, exhortation here 
regarding sexual purity begins, therefore, with the all-authoritative commandment coming directly from Jesus through the Apostle Paul to the church. That's the, that's the, um, that's the command of sanctification. What about the actual calling of sanctification? Well, I want to point out several things here because really to formulate this, this is kind of the heart of the, 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 the exhortation in this passage. This is the heart of the section here, verses 3 all the way down to verse 7. That's the heart, that's the essence of the text of what's going on here. And Paul begins, first and foremost, with a calling towards sanctification, and he does that in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul is saying this is God's will, a lot of people are mistaken in terms of what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? You ever heard of that? People chasing God's will around, right? Sort of thinking that the will of God is only this mysterious thing that we need to be after. We ought to be chasing. We need to try to figure out what the will of God is for me personally and each individual decision in my life. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, what he says, what he's saying here is that this will is revealed, uh, in other words, this aspect of the will of God does not require prayer. It does not entail mystery. It doesn't demand investigation. It is absolutely clear. In other words, this is a matter of principle, not a matter of mystery. It's a simple truth, a pure fact. It's non-negotiable Christianity. Sanctification is God's will for us. We don't need to question that. We don't need to pray about that. And so when you find Christians or you talk to Christians that are not really concerned with their sanctification, they have no concern about their, their Christian growth or their maturity, they are not obeying God's revealed will. And they always have personal subjective reasons for that. And they're all false because God has revealed emphatically and universally that this is God's will for His people. It is to make them holy. Now, in the calling of sanctification, there are several things that are called for. Number one, there is a call to abstain from sexual immorality. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, uh, beginning with that term there, sexual immorality, what does the word mean and what does he refer to? This word here, taste porneos, is actually a word that describes any kind of sexual deviancy that is not sanctioned by God in His Word or in His law. It refers specifically to the act of having unlawful relations before marriage in the act of fornication or after marriage through adultery or through some other form of cohabiting with someone that is not your spouse. However, as a general principle, this word, sexual immorality, can also refer to anything that is immoral in the sight of God, anything that is not blessed by God sexually. And what is blessed by God sexually? Well, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that what is blessed by God sexually is the marriage bed. It says the marriage bed is to be honored among all and is undefiled. Anything outside of that is harmful for us. And that sexual immorality may come in different forms, different sizes, some more harmful than others, more destructive than others. But at the end of the day, anything that violates God's law on sexual immorality is impure and ungodly. That's what the Word of God teaches. Now, at this stage in the life of the Thessalonians, 
This is, you might be wondering, why did Paul start there? I mean, we understand how important it is, but why did Paul begin there with the Thessalonians, with the very first thing he says, sexual immorality? And I would suggest to you that the reason why is because Thessalonica was situated in this, as a central hub of the pagan Greco-Roman world. Much of that was based on immorality. Uh, If you think we live in a decadent culture today, and we certainly do, we absolutely do, our culture is sexually deviant and decadent and debased in many ways. But if you can try to imagine with me, the Roman Empire was altogether decadent in every way, from homosexuality to pedophilia, prostitution, All of that was rampant in the ancient world. Roman emperors, by the way, if you don't know, the majority of Roman emperors themselves were homosexual, deviants, sexually speaking. Um, Matter of fact, for a Roman, the thought of monogamous fidelity in marriage under God was completely foreign. They had no concept of that. They, they, They thought that was a sign of weakness, not a sign of honor. So think about that. You live in a culture, in a world, where faithfulness to one person in a covenant of marriage for life is looked upon as weakness. And as a matter of fact, Gordon Fee, in his, uh, in his uh, uh, commentary on these letters, he points out, quoting an old Roman uh, a writer, he says that women were really thought of as more like property than persons. You think there's There's chauvinism in our society. You think that women's rights is an issue in our society. In a Roman, Greco-Roman cultural world, women were property. They weren't really persons. They, They didn't have the same dignity as a man in a patriarchal society. They were just looked upon as something that was there simply for man's pleasure and nothing else. Gordon Fee says it was typical for a man to have a mistress for pleasure, concubines for domestic living, and wives only for legitimate children. That was the culture that the Thessalonians were living in. Think about that. Rome is a perfect example of what happens to a culture that doesn't have any biblical foundations at all, not even in the basic governance of the culture. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, because after all, we're talking about the Greco-Roman world and we're talking about Rome. How about looking at the book of Romans? And in Romans chapter 1, after saying in beginning of verse 18 that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven, now we might ask, what do you mean the wrath of God is revealed from heaven? Because it's a present tense, actually. It's not that it will. We have an understanding in our mind of the wrath of God will be revealed, right? We understand that in terms of ultimate final judgment. But Paul uses the present tense to say there is a sense in which the wrath of God is already active and revealed from heaven. And what does that look like? That looks like the complete and total giving over of a society, of a culture that rejects God. Where does the rejection of God come in? Well, look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They didn't give thanks to God. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I remember reading a book on apologetics, and they're talking about different philosophers throughout the ages um, that have come through. And many of the philosophers, after years and decades, a lifetime of speculating philosophically about the meaning of life, the majority of philosophers at some point in their lives come to the conclusion life has no meaning. Think about that. That's, that's all that, that, that godless philosophy can offer you. 
Um, in verse 22, it says that. Professing to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and, cra- and crawling creatures. Therefore, this is the first expression of the wrath of God being revealed now. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So how do you know a society? How do you know a culture? How do you know a people, maybe even a person, has been given over by the wrath of God? Is that they plunge headlong into lusts and impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They would much rather be deceived than to obey God. And it says they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. A culture will become idolatrous, ultimately, even if that idolatry uh, uh, casts itself in the form of atheism, which is ultimately an idolizing of self, where humanism is the highest goal in life. And the Humanist Manifesto, even today, says man needs no gods, no spirits or angels or anything of the sort. It says that man only needs self. A humanist culture says that man is the measure of all things. That's it. It's completely devoid of God. Look at this, verse 26, another expression of this, giving over. He says, for, th- for this reason God gave them over to the degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way... Also, men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire toward one another, homosexuality. Men with men. There's no debate. I don't know what the church is debating. I don't know what the culture is debating. There is no debate. It's like Paul is saying, okay, little boys and girls, one plus one is two. Man and man means homosexuality. It's a sin. There's no debate. Okay? And... uh, And he goes on to say, it's almost like you've got to say it that clearly, right? Because no matter how clear either God in the New Testament or in the Old Testament makes it, people want to complicate the issue as if it's complicated. It's really not. And he says, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I'll never forget. I was watching a documentary, Apologetics and the Moral Decline of America. I was watching this old, this is probably filmed in the 80s, but there, at the end of the, this, this particular video I was watching, um, there was a man laying on his deathbed, having given his life completely over to homosexuality and to a life of total sexual, sexual deviance. There he was laying on his deathbed with AIDS, dying, covered in boils and lesions all over his body. At the end of his life, he actually repented, became a believer, and he said, had I just followed what the Bible said from the beginning... Had I understood what God teaches about purity in the Bible, I wouldn't be where I am now. The man was so afflicted by his, by his diseases that he had, his multiple diseases that he had, he was almost unrecognizable. That is where it can lead. And therefore, God says that they were given over and they pay the penalty in their own persons or their own bodies or their own life in some way. He says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, 
boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they do not know the ordinance, even though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is such a devastating commentary on a world that has been given over by God in its immorality. Now, return back with me, because I can spend the rest of the day there. Back with me to 1 Thessalonians. So I think if we look at this overarching exhortation, abstain from sexual immorality, I think what follows in the rest of the call here to sanctification, I think what follows here is a way that we can actually do this. Or maybe some advice that Paul gives us, a manner in which we can obey the overarching command to abstain from sexual immorality. And Paul is actually going to move from the life of the individual to the life of the culture to the life of the church. So follow with me. The first one is this. first one is this. Here, Paul gives us a call to adopt a view of the body that is holy. Remember, in a Greco-Roman culture, the vast majority of the culture operates upon Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy was dominated by Platonic thought. Platonic thought taught you that your body was not relevant, that your body is actually uh, materially uh, deficient anyway, that it's defective, that it's not good. Uh, matter is not, matter cannot possibly attain to anything good. And actually, when that became, when that sort of platonic idea became uh, mixed with spirituality, two things resulted from that, either resulting in a form of Gnosticism that taught a harsh uh, asceticism. In other words, you neglected the body, you starved the body, you flogged the body, the body was to be mistreated, or you indulged the body and it resulted into a hedonism. The person that came to that conclusion thought that all caution to the wind, you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter anyway because what really matters is your inside, your soul, your spirit. So you can do what you want with your body as long as you try to advance yourself spiritually. All of those views are unbiblical and wrong. That's why Paul begins with this exhortation. He says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, verse 4, and I should, um, I should start with this because it's, it's, if you do any study of this verse whatsoever, you'll run up against the controversy that surrounds this text. The reason there's a controversy here is because the text could actually be taken to meet, be uh, referring to a couple of different things at least. And the two major views of this text is that when Paul says each one of you ought to know how to possess his own vessel, the, the, the word therefore possess is katomai, which can be interpreted as obtain or gain. And so what that has led to is the interpretation that the word vessel, uh, skewos, that Greek word, therefore refers either to a body or to a person. And so the alternative historical position, which goes all the way back to ancient history, all the way to Augustine, I believe it goes back. But um, what that view taught was basically that what Paul was saying here is that each man should know how to obtain a vessel that is a wife or spouse in sanctification and in honor. There's only, I guess the only problem with that is, well, a couple of things. Number one, 
nowhere in the Bible does the Bible teach that a vessel is a reference to a wife and that the vessel belongs to the man. Uh, actually, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, a vessel applies to all believers. So male or female is called a vessel in the sense that we are a vessel that God fills But never in Scripture are we taught that a vessel is something that a man obtains for himself in terms of a wife. Furthermore, the word here, uh, obtain, can also speak of gaining mastery. That's the way that John MacArthur and other commentators take it. They take katomai to mean that what is to be possessed, what is to be gained, is some sort of gaining that is over the body. So it must refer to some sort of self-mastery. That's my position And I can bore you with all of the fine exegetical details, but my position is that, that what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that every individual believer, not just men, but every individual believer must know how to possess your own body in sanctification and honor. And, you know, verse 5, I think, makes a lot more sense out of that. He says, not in lustful passion. Passion is something that happens within. And so it obviously speaks to the self. Not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this is then a call for self-mastery. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. Because bodily discipline, meaning bodily exercise, has a limited amount of profit. But spiritual discipline has great profit. Profit for now, profit for the future, profit for eternity. And it's another aspect of this self Mastery. It's a looking upon the body as the sacred temple of the Lord. First Corinthians chapter seven, the apostle Paul says, Will you take the temple of God and join it to a prostitute? They're showing how you can abominate the temple of God in yourself by acts of immorality. That's why Paul says that your body should be properly set aside for sanctification and for honor. A vessel, after all, for God, a vessel, whether you're talking about instruments in the temple, whether you're talking about the believer's body, those things are to be consecrated for God, set aside for holy use. What is the, what is the opposite, I ask you, what is the opposite of honor, Time. The opposite of honor is shame, disgrace, degradation. That is precisely what results from sexual immorality. That's exactly what sexual immorality produces, shame, degradation, and disgrace. In Romans chapter 6, verse 21, that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that having lived a life of unbelief and engaging in ungodly practices, those things now only serve to bring us shame. Well, it's not just having a proper view of yourself, gaining mastery over your body, but it's also having proper view of your surrounding. So there's also here not, not just a, a, a call to adopt a view of your body, but there's also a call to abandon, listen carefully now, abandon sinful cultural norms. Look at what he says, verse 5. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Uh, by the way, in verse 5 there, the Gentiles, here he's no longer thinking of Jew, Gentile. Now he's thinking of believer, unbeliever. It's very interesting the language here Paul uses because uh, as a, you know, coming from the old covenant, when you referenced a Gentile, you spoke of somebody who was ceremonial unclean, somebody who was outside the camp, 
somebody who was outside of the covenant. But now, the way that Paul views this is that anyone who is not in Christ, now who is the epicenter of the covenant people of God, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, now you are considered a Gentile. So, in a sense, Paul transforms that word. He does this with a number of vocabulary terms, by the way, in the New Testament. But here, he's saying, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles. By the way, what's the best argument for that? He's writing the Gentiles. <laughs> so he can't possibly mean Gentiles in terms of ethnicity. He's talking about Gentiles in terms of unbelievers. Unbelievers, he says, they, they relate to their body in, the, in lustful passion and they do not know God. And so two things here are set in, in opposition to purity. Number one, lustful passions. Number two, the lack of of the knowledge of God. Understand this, brothers and sisters. Culture is absolutely no help to you in your purity. Nothing. Not at all. They want nothing to do with your purity. They're not there to help your purity. Our culture will not help us to be pure. As a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. In the world, what you will find is a complete undermining of purity, a complete undermining of holiness, a total disregard for the holiness of God and for the law of God. This is the way that Paul describes culture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. He says that there, the unbeliever practices every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, what happens to the world that is devoid of the knowledge of God is that they have nothing left except this erratic, insane, insatiable uh, hunger and pursuit for self-gratification. And that self-gratification can come in all sorts of different vices, whether you're talking about drunkenness, whether you're talking about okay, drugs, you know the word drugs not in the Bible, but you know what I mean, any substance abuse, whether you're talking about greed or gluttony or materialism or covetousness. But part of that pursuit, that insatiable a sinful hunger of the world is a sexual deviancy, a practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, something drives the culture deeper and deeper into debasement, and it is the spirit of the age. It's exactly what John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, that all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, it says, is not of the Father, but is of the world. It's of the evil one, ultimately. The Apostle Paul is simply calling us to live counterculturally. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, because here Paul and Peter speak in perfect unison one another. He says here, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time already is past and is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, which just speaks of reveling and partying, and he says drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so here, the Apostle Peter is saying the world, as far as the world is concerned, they are on a path, they are on a course, they are on a racetrack 
as, as hard as they can run with as much as they can get away with of immorality. And what he's saying is, don't run with them. You have carried out enough of the desires of the flesh. In other words, in your unbelief. And verse 4 tells us the attitude of the world. They are surprised that you do not run. That really should be what the world thinks of the church. They should be surprised, shocked. They should be frustrated and angry. They should be completely at odds with our disposition when it comes to sexual immorality. They should be looking at us like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you join in in what everybody else is doing? Why don't you watch what everybody else is watching? Why don't you talk the way everybody else is talking? Why don't you listen to the same things that other people listen to? That's what it means to be a Christian, to be set apart by God. What an incredible commentary, by the way. This, again, just shows us that the best commentary for Scripture is Scripture. Uh, He moves on from the culture, as you notice here in verse 6. And now he goes from the life of the individual to the life of the culture to the life of the church. Look, Look what he says. He says that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In other words, here the Apostle Paul, when he says, when he says that God is the uh, avenger of these things, when he calls us not to defraud a brother in the matter, that matter is sexual immorality. So what he's saying is that we cannot ever as a church, and here's the thing, when a pursuit of purity is abandoned by the church, when a pursuit of purity is compromised by the church, the church runs the risk of sinning against each other, exploiting one another, taking advantage of each other for selfish and sensual reasons. You hear it everywhere. I mean, you hear it everywhere. Uh, devastation in the church everywhere through immorality, uh, through some sort of adultery, through some sort of fornication, to some, some sort of molestation. I mean, I know of, of a church nearby that's going through a radical, radical time because of some crazy thing that happened years and years ago among teenagers. And there's all sorts of legal things involved, and it can wreak absolute havoc in the church. And that's why Paul says that we better not defraud one another in this way because God is the avenger of all of these things. The word here, avenger, uh, you can translate this word punisher. And God can punish sexual immorality in various ways. God can punish it in all sorts of different ways. And think about the story I told you about the man laying there on his dying bed after a lifelong, you know, life of, ex, you know, sexual ecstasy and where it led him. But it can happen in all sorts of other ways, personal ways. It, we can have personal losses. We can have familial losses. We have, obviously, marital loss. We can have uh, ministry loss. This is a warning that everybody needs to take heed to. Uh, the, the word here, avenger, punisher, is found only in one other passage in the New Testament, and that's in Romans chapter 13, verse 4. And there it's referring to the civil authorities, like a Roman guard or a law enforcement officer who can come in and exact punishment. God can punish and will punish all immorality. Look with me in your Bibles to Colossians 3, because there the Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear 
that unlike what the world tells us, unlike what the culture says, it doesn't matter how hip and cool they make it look. It doesn't, make, it doesn't matter how attractive they make it look. They can put it in a commercial. They can put it in a, in a, in a, in a theater. They can put it in a comedy film. They can do anything they want to do with it. They can trivialize it. They can explain it in a way. They can sort of make it seem as if it's just all, all normal and everything is fine. But the reality is the complete opposite. God does not look at sexual immorality in those trivial ways. The only attitude God has towards sexual immorality is wrath. Look at verse 5. Uh, this is Colossians 3, 5. He says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity. See, what I like about this Colossians text, you have to remember, is he's speaking to believers. And of course, you know, maybe you don't battle sexual sin. Maybe you've battled greatly sexual sin. But everyone can be tempted, amen? And everyone needs the exhortation that Paul is giving here. And what he's saying is that the only way to approach this in our own lives is, well, the word that he uses here is kill. Uh, in other words, don't play around with it. Kill it. And he says, kill it or consider it dead. That is immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed that amounts to idolatry. And then he sums up in verse 6. For because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Disobedience. There's an amazing text here in, uh, in this verse because it shows us, if you would, the logic of our sanctification here. He says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. And then notice what he says. He says, but in sanctification. And when he says in sanctification, what he's saying is that the very act of saving you is a holy act. Everything that, that, that you do in terms of sexual immorality is a contradiction to who you are because of salvation. Think about it. God called us. He saved us for the purpose of purity. Salvation is pure. Walking with God is pure. Communion with God is pure. Whether we're talking about prayer or worship or meditation on Scripture, studying Scripture, serving God, all of those things are purity, are pure, and they are all holy enterprises in the Christian life. Salvation will result in the complete sanctification and the purity of the believer in heaven. Our whole life is supposed to be characterized by this purity, by this holiness. And there's a further consequence. Look with me back here to Thessalonians. Look at verse 8. He says, continuing the same logic, he says, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, I had to meditate on that verse over and over and over and over because it's like, I would have said so many other things. But I know Paul's words are better than mine. <laughs> I won't compete there. He's inspired. I'm not. There's a reason why he says what he says. Obviously, we understand the initial consequence of sanctification. If you reject this commandment, you are not rejecting man. You are rejecting God. You see that? Because this command, remember, going full circle back to the very beginning of the, of the chapter, is rooted where? In the authority of Jesus Christ. It's in, it's in His authority. You know what this does to us, brothers and sisters? It challenges our view 
of the doctrine of God. And it challenges our view of the Word of God. It challenges, it really speaks to whether or not we view the Bible as God's all authoritative revelation to His people. It really does. I got news for you. Not a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians, maybe that's an overstatement, but pastors do that. You have to give me some grace. But there's a lot of professing Christians that do not take the Bible as their ultimate authority for life and practice. They really don't. Uh, They'll follow it to an extent. The minute it touches on their checkbook, they have their own views. They have their own position. The minute it touches upon their time, their resources, the minute it touches upon their personal life, they have their own positions and their own convictions about stuff like that. No, no, no. God, and it really should speak to us of the love of God. God loves us so much. He wants every aspect of us. He's greedy for us. He, what is James, how does James put it? The Spirit of God jealously desires us. He wants us for Himself. You see that jealousy on display all throughout the Old Testament. God was jealous over Israel that they would be His particular special set-apart people. Anytime we're doing that, we are adulterating our relationship with God anytime we give in to immorality. And so, therefore, this opening uh, uh, exhortation is very, very severe. If you reject this instruction regarding sexual immorality, you're not rejecting man. As a matter of fact, you are at odds with God. You will be fighting or kicking against the goad, so to speak. But it's further than that. When I say the logic of sanctification, we come to the very heart of sanctification in what Paul says. Because by rejecting these things, you're not just rejecting God, but you're rejecting the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And he could, he could have easily just said spirit, but he adds the word holy to go along with the context of sanctification. That the holy God gave you the Holy Spirit for holiness. It's that simple. Any of you can finish the sermon at this point. But I'll take a stab at it. He gives us his Holy Spirit. You know what's so wonderful about this? What's wonderful about this is because the reason it's, the reason it's so powerful Because in one sense, God could not have made the offense of immorality more clear than by using these words. In other words, to really show us how offensive sexual immorality is to God, He has no better way to do that but then to say, I gave you the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that's supposed to sanctify you. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that's supposed to empower you to overcome sin. Not to give in to sin. Of course. There's so much here. What this did is it launched me in a whole direction on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is given to us precisely for the purpose of sanctification. The implication here, of course, is that essential to our sanctification, therefore, is the ministry of the Spirit. Let me read you this. The Spirit is given to us to conform us to the image of Christ. The Spirit is given to us to, to convict the world of righteousness, to lead us to, comfort us, to comfort us, and to fellowship with us, to keep us obedient to God's Word. That's Acts chapter 5, verse 32. The Spirit is also given to us um, 
So that through the Spirit, that is, through the agency of the Spirit, through the influence and the power of the Spirit, bolstered by the Word of God and by the means of grace in the church, the Spirit, listen, is our divine mortifier. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me quickly just to show you more of this. In Romans chapter 8, oh boy, that's the chapter of the Spirit. I'm supposed to go to Mexico in November and preach at a conference with Joseph Urban on the Spirit. I was really tempted to call him and say, I will only come if I can exposit Romans 8. Because <laughs> this is it. This is the heart of it all right here. And here we see the means of grace that the Spirit is in our lives, the aid, the helper, the, 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 the paraclete that he's intended to be. It says, so then, brethren, we are, under, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. By the way, that death can come in stages. You can die practically, immediately. You can die spiritually. Your communion with God can die. You can die in all sorts of practical ways, but it can also come ultimately or with finality, eternally. If you live according to the flesh, you can die spiritually forever. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So see that? The body has deeds. It has impulses. It has powers. It has lusts. And the, 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 the Greek word in the Bible, epithumia, just means strong passions. And that can be either sexual or, or just other things. It could be uh, outbursts of wrath. It could be envy, jealousy, greed. Whatever epithumia manifests itself in, your body has this potential But if by the Spirit you are putting these things to death, then you will live. That's the whole point. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I love what Ian Hamilton Hamilton said in a book on the Holy Spirit called The Holy Spirit and Reformed Spirituality. Listen to what Ian says. This is very, very uh, important, so listen closely. I'll try to read it clearly. The Holy Spirit comes to plant the graces of Christ into our lives. He plants those graces in the inhospitable soil of our hearts, meaning our hearts are not naturally hospitable to the grace of God. Okay, He says, where sin is still lingering. He says, as those graces are watered by the Word of God, by prayer, by the ministry of God's people, and by the fellowship of the saints, they flourish and they squeeze sin out of our life. I love that. The reason I love that is because it shows us the hope of our sanctification. That though you may be battling now sexual immorality, uh, you may be battling now with some form of lust or or some sort of vice, whatever it may be, you have the hope that by the Spirit you can put these things to death. A real hope. We have to believe this. I wrote down this, this sentence here, and I, I italicized it, and I marked it because you know how I get caught up while I'm preaching. I forget things. And I didn't want to forget this sentence, and so I'll read it to you now because I think it fits with what Paul's saying here. What I wrote is this. Is it not remarkable that knowing the destruction that sin brings, it is only because of sin that we do not avail ourselves to the mortification of sin in our lives. 
It is only because of sin. I mean, if we think about the destructive power of sin in our lives, you would think that we would avail ourselves to the Spirit of God to overcome and to destroy sin in our lives were it not for sin. This is a terrible condition. Dreadful, I would say. It's like what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you're still nearby there in Romans 8, Oh, I would say this. Alas, God has given us a helper. Because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul calls our condition simply this. Weakness. Uh, I mean, aren't you honest enough to say, you're weak. And doesn't the Bible say, take heed lest you fall. That's just a reminder that tells us, I don't care who you are. You're not as strong as you think you are. See what I'm saying? Why? Is it just because, well, that guy had better accountability stuff around him and he was better at it and stuff like that? No. The reason why is because we are in a state of weakness. That's why we have to take heed. It boils down to who you are still in your unredeemed humanness, that you are still susceptible to the desires of the flesh, to put it plainly. But this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Spirit helps our weakness. You know, you can, um, you can seek accountability with anybody that you want. You can get accountable with pastors, with brothers, with sisters, with software. You can do anything you want to keep yourself accountable. Ultimately, the aid and the help and the accountability that you need is that of the Spirit. But we can tell if you're being accountable to the Spirit by how you avail yourself to the Spirit of God. And whether or not you're actually utilizing the means of grace in your life. What is the Spirit? This is the Spirit. The Spirit is a sin-combating, sin-crushing, sin-conquering Spirit. And when we yield ourselves to the Spirit, that we can, by the grace of God, experience victory. Won't be perfect. Won't be per- if you expect perfection, even in the area of sexual purity, you'll be disappointed. But we can, by the grace of God, and I thank God for His promises. If it were not for these promises, we would be in utter despair because we have nowhere to go. But thank God that He gives His Holy Spirit to us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we confess our sin to You now. We confess, Lord, that in our hearts we are prone to wander. We confess, O God, that after... 20 years of walking with God. Our sin can still hit us upside the head. And we can still fall. We are children who need their Father. Lord, we need you to strengthen us in the inner man. 